1: Welcome to Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 21 and we're recording on March 9th. I'm Jen Northington and I'm here with Sharifa Williams and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Today's theme is sci-fi fantasy in translation.
0: Yay! I literally chose this theme because I read one book that I liked (laughs) and was like, I don't know what
1: else to talk about. Well, it's we're recording this the same week as International Women's Day, which I realized just now as I was reading oh, the intro. Yeah. And we do have some international ladies on the list. So it, it's not 100%, but it works out. Um <laughs> we'll take any any link that we can.
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, I it's hard because I don't necessarily look ahead that much with literary holidays and I sort of well international women's day isn't just a literary holiday everything is just set in a literary format in my head but indeed
1: indeed but yeah
0: now i i should think about that <laughs> going <laughs> forward i guess um but before we talk about our picks and about news in science fiction and fantasy i am going to tell you about our first sponsor And that is The Glass Blade, the first book in the brand new Hunters of Infinity series from Ryan Weiser. And The Hunters of Infinity is an elite brotherhood of warriors who have protected the galaxy for as far back as anyone can remember And when a fierce and enigmatic young woman named Jessup saves Hunter Cole O'Hanlon, the Brotherhood breaks tradition for the first time in their history and invites a woman into their elite training facility. But Jessup is hiding dark secrets and a mysterious past that may threaten not just the hunters, but the entire Daharian galaxy. So if you're looking for a science fiction space opera with a fierce female warrior, I am always looking for a fierce female warrior. Then you can't miss Ryan Weiser's The Glass Blade. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show.
1: Yeah, when are we not looking for a fierce warrior? Never. Warriors? Never. <laughs> <Or> never. <laughs> All right. We have a pair of terries to talk about today. I know. I'm going to get confused. One, one is good and one is less good. Um, Although, depending on your perspective. Okay, I'll just talk about one of them to start with. Um, I want to talk about Terry Goodkind and his cover commentary, uh, which is something. So here's what happened. The author Terry Goodkind, who is pretty well known uh, for the Sword of Truth series, posted like a real takedown of the cover for his latest book, Shroud of Eternity. Um, he wrote a Facebook post calling it like laughably bad and made a poll about how bad it was and was going to pick commenters to receive a signed copy. And of course, the cover artist, because this is the internet, saw mm-hmm. it. Uh, I think people sent it to him. Yeah, he is, was
0: tagged.
1: Yeah, he got tagged and and saw it and did not appreciate it much. Um, and he... Has his name is Bastien Lacouf de Harm. I probably I apologize. I don't know French pronunciation well. Um, he's worked on Magic: The Gathering and has done a lot of book covers for publishing houses, including Tor and Random House and Del Rey and Orbit, so basically all of the big sci-fi publishers. And he was just like, "Not cool, bro." <laughs> um, so he responded to the post, and then other people weighed in, and it turned into a whole thing. And then Terry Goodkind doubled down and said that, oh, he wasn't saying the art was bad, except that he did. But no, <laughs> he's, he's saying, I wasn't saying the art was bad. I'm saying it's sexist and insists that because the female in question is wearing, has heels on her boots, that it's it's sexist. Which the artist responded to and said, pretty sure that's not I mean that's certainly not what I was going for he he's commented specifically on giving her practical armor and you know didn't like emphasize her her breasts or anything and looking at it I have to agree with the artist it it seems pretty unsexist to me actually she's got a sword she looks pissed off you, there's no cleavage, um, and her boots don't look any different from what, say, Wonder Woman was wearing in Wonder Woman, uh, which, you know, the the jury is out on whether or not heels on boots make you unfeminist, But <laughs> but I don't think Terry Goodkind gets the last word on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, and they showed another, an earlier cover from this series and she was, and I was staring at this cover because I was like, it looks like she's wearing the exact same boots. So he had she to have seen is. that before because these were boots she owned, by the way. <laughs> these are the models boots. Oh, really? Yeah. That's even better. I know. I read that part and I was like, oh, I like these boots. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I mean, would wear?
0: Yeah. Like, I I think that it it would have struck me if this cover was sexist. And when I saw the cover before I saw the follow-up article about how he called it sexist, I didn't think that at all. And I also think like it is sort of – I know that there's a disconnect between the writers of these books and Mm -hmm. the, the cover artists and all of the teams that go into creating these covers. I understand that. But there is, especially with the first article about this post he made and this poll, like and the comment that the artist make, which is made, which is totally true. He he was saying, like, if if this had happened to me five years ago before he was established and, mm-hmm. you know, had success, he said he would have been devastated. And I found that really sad. And I thought, you know, like there has to be more consideration. With Terry Goodkind, I just feel like this whole thing was a really bad move and, and kind of thoughtless. Like, he didn't have to do it in this way if he didn't like the cover to bring it out and to call it out on Facebook in this manner and with a poll, no less, Yeah, where he was giving away signed copies of his book. like That felt just really in poor taste, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, at the very least, it's bad form. Like, at the very least. Now, he's not especially known for being a stand-up nice gentleman. So, perhaps... Some folks are unsurprised who who have followed him more closely than I have. I have not followed him particularly closely, nor have I read any of his books since I was a teenager. So I can't speak very much to that part of it. But I will say cover stuff is always interesting to me because there have been some notable instances where an author utilizing the public to get a cover changed... Has been done. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically of Justine Larbalestier's Liar, which was, boy, is that like a decade ago now? Um, (laughs) Where where they had whitewashed the main character on the cover of the book. And she had complained internally about it, and they hadn't changed it. And then... You know, the cover got revealed, and um, bloggers and reviewers started asking Justine about it, saying, "Like, I'm confused. Why is this cover character white? I, you know, the character in the book is not white; is black." Mm -hmm. Um, And and she, for a while, didn't say anything. And then eventually, she was like, "Well, people are saying this so much. I'm not the one who started it, but I'm going to agree with you. Like, yes, this is whitewashed." And they actually redid the cover in time for publication. I'm sure it cost them a bundle. Um, But that's an instance where. Where she wasn't attacking the cover artist and she wasn't attacking the cover arts quality she was saying this is inaccurate to my book and she waited for you know sort of reader response um, before she made it public after having gone through the channels that she could go through and and artists you know terry goodkind probably could get a cover changed if he wanted to all by himself but a lot of Writers don't have those kinds of power um, in their publishing contracts, so, so, so there is a good way to go about saying, "Hey, my cover is bad, and it needs to get changed," and there is a way to do it with the public involved. But this was not that, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that did remind me that Nettie Okorafor had the same sort of thing happen mm. to her. And I remember that going up on Twitter. Um, I think it was with the shadow speaker. And I just recently saw that and was reminded of it again. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there are, I, I can't say across the board, you can never bring it out. You can right. never bring it up in public. But those are especially like You know, I don't know. Those are especially sensitive cases where I'm like, do
1: whatever you can to avoid that cover being whitewashed, whatever it is. And they didn't say anything about the art itself, right? Like they didn't say "This, this model is terrible, this cover is awful. Like they just said, they pointed out the specific issue that was wrong with it rather than trashing the art itself, which I think is is a is good form if i'm gonna stick with my my phrasing
0: (laughs) yeah exactly they didn't make a game out of it too like i feel like they're that poll for
1: you know that just
0: particularly very poor taste yep bad terry good (laughs) combat
1: yep not 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 cool bro
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right um shall we talk about the next terry Yes, let's talk about the next Terry. Yes. (laughs) So this Terry, this is a better Terry story. This is about Terry Pratchett, who um, I think I have talked about quite a lot on this show (laughs) already. So what's happening is that Discworld is a set for a TV adaptation with BBC Studios. Which gives me all sorts of feelings. So there's a lot of speculation about this adaptation because there haven't been any real, you know, formal statements about exactly what it's going to be about. But it seems like it's going to be the working title is The Watch. And it seems like it's going to center on a certain subplot of the Discworld series. And this is what I was concerned with first. Because I was like, as I was talking about in the last episode, Discworld is huge and sprawling. I think it's like 40 some odd books. So I was like, how are they going to do this in a six-part miniseries? So it's a six-part miniseries. Mm. And... Uh, One part of it that was really, that made me hopeful is that the movie's being co-produced by Narrativa, which is Pratchett's own production company, and that production company is now run, at least in part, by his daughter Rihanna, who's been very involved with Discworld and with her father's work. And the film does, the title does insinuate that the series will finally bring um, this long-talked-about adaptation of the City Watch subplot of Discworld, if any of you are readers of the Discworld series. And Rihanna, his daughter, tweeted about this adaptation this particular one the watch in like way back in 2012 so it's been a long time and this story would be set in uh one of the major cities of Discworld which is Ankh-Morpork and since details about the actual content isn't yet available there is a lot of speculation so I'm a little bit concerned. There have been Discworld adaptations previously made, like Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. These are all from the UK. Terry Pratchett's The Color of Magic and Terry Pratchett's Going Postal. But the books have been historically challenging to adapt because there's so much happening in the series. And like, for instance, Sam Raimi was supposed to direct an adaptation of the Tiffany Aching story, The We Free Men. I was just mm-hmm. talking about that subplot. But Terry Pratchett called the proposals, the proposed script awful. So there have been all sorts of <laughs> challenges with Discworld adaptations. So I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so like the verdict is... Wait and see, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, I am glad it's coming out. There was a part of me that was wondering how this would be if, for instance, a a U.S. production company Mm. was handling it or if it was being held by somebody in the U.S. And I think I'm a little bit happier that it's not going that route, that it's not going to be like this one movie blockbuster or something like that. But it's still very, like, I haven't seen anything come out of Discworld recently that has been satisfying to me Mm -hmm. I guess Mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's possible because I think there are fans out there who are like me who are very invested in this series (laughs) (laughs) and have very high perhaps sort of unreasonable expectations Mm -hmm. so I haven't really read the City Watch books which is another reason i like, I'm feeling a little bit hopeful. I sort of don't want to read this anymore. Yeah, yeah, so, maybe don't. Yeah, there are so many other books I can choose from. I'm like, it sounds, the more I read about it, the more I'm like, oh, maybe I do want to read this. But <laughs> I think I'm going to wait for this um, six-part mini series to come out and then read the books afterwards. So I'm, like, not inflamed with critique.
1: Right. I mean, you might be waiting for a while. This is all probably going to yes. be years in the making. Um, so... Yeah,
0: yeah. They haven't... They don't have any, like, um, premiere date or anything, No, obviously. no. And,
1: <laughs> and Good Omens, which is filming right now, right, is mm-hmm. uh, not coming out until 2019. So I would imagine it would have to be after that at the earliest. So... Yeah. Maybe I'll
0: forget about it all. I hope I don't accidentally forget and then say, "Ooh, you know what? I don't know why this occurred to me, but I should read the City Watch (laughs) subplot.
1: Can you like put a little sticky note on your bookshelf? Do not read.
0: (laughs) Now we have to like write it on, tattoo it on my head because (laughs) I I never remember these things. Oh, funny. Somebody please remind me. I'll try to remind
1: you. if I hear you talking about reading new Discworld I will try to try to intervene okay okay that'll do <laughs> um speaking of adaptations because there's always adaptations I want to talk real quick about the uh, his dark materials adaptation news that yes. has come out um there is a word that... That um, the King's speech director, Tom Hooper, and then Daphne Keene, the actress and star of Logan, um, have signed on for the adaptation. And I I, I also... Man, uh, there's rumors, or is it actually true? It's, I've seen it worded three different ways, but apparently, Lynn Manuel Miranda is joining as Lee Scoresby. Yes, and I'm super psyched for Daphne Kane. I think she's great. I loved her in Logan, and she, she, when I look at her face, I totally can see Lyra, but I feel like. As, like, all do love for Lynn manuel Miranda. I do love him. He is too young for Lee Scoresby, the, at least the character that I remember in my head.
0: Yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that until you mentioned him, and I was literally just looking at a picture of the Golden Compass version of mm-hmm. him, and I remember Philip Pullman said, like, that was one of the, that guy, the guy who played him, I don't remember his actual name, um, in that film, was the one sort of casting they got right other than Nicole
1: Kidman? Yeah, Sam cool. Elliott. He was yeah. perfect. He was, pr- I mean, that movie was a hot mess, but he was yes. great. Um, And he looks exactly like I. So, I mean, are they going to like age Miranda up or is he going to have, can he grow a handlebar mustache? Like, <laughs> I have so many questions. I feel like I, this
0: I, is one I, of those people you could probably tweet. <laughs>
1: yeah right yeah i mean if i was on twitter i guess i would but um i'm not opposed to it i just i i foresee some some i have i have some i have some fan belly aching to do i guess i mean i'm sure he'd be great in the role it it i think it would lend itself to his acting talent certainly but i just kind of wonder about the age thing now who knows? Maybe it'll be perfect and I won't mind. Um, but that's... that is. Those are my initial thoughts on this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I... After the Golden Compass adaptation, because I really love these books and I... It sounds like, of course, I'm not the only person who was mm-hmm. disappointed with the Golden Compass. Nope. Um, And so I... I walk into this sort of news a little bit trepidatiously but I was excited about Lin-Manuel Miranda. I do not know also how they're going to do this. They it would be easy sort of for them to try and make him to age him
1: Mm -hmm. for
0: the role. You know there are some pretty good prosthetics out there. Hopefully I'll put them to good use.
1: (laughs) It's true. But um I don't know like. Well in a it just occurred to me that perhaps I should be more excited about an actor of color getting that role, so maybe yeah. I take it back. Like maybe, maybe it's kind of not the point how old he is.
0: Yeah, I I can see him doing well in this role. Somehow there is something about his personality because this, you know, the character is sort of like an adventurous, and I can I thought of him as sort of like a fun loving character. Yeah, a little bit of a scamp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I see that in Emmanuel Miranda. Mm -hmm. So, I Mm -hmm. don't know. I'm kind of I'm still, I'm maintaining my excitement about the casting so far. Yeah, I just completely changed my mind about
1: this since we started talking about it. I take it back I'm, I'm into it <laughs> all it takes is a little to- that's right that's right and
0: this is an eight-part series so I'm glad I'm also glad that it's not going to be like a situation where maybe if it doesn't do well they just end it with the first book because mm-hmm. they're actually going to be covering the whole you know trilogy so that is going to be interesting because we haven't seen, like, you know, the Golden Compass just cut off after that movie. We haven't right. seen the the rest of the books visualized, like, in, you know, a film or TV format. So I'm really curious about how they're going to do that because I remember toward the end of the um I think toward the last book or the middle of the second book, it started to get really weird, which yes. was good. <laughs> it was good, but I'm really curious about how they're going to make that work um, for television. But the guy mm-hmm. who directed, it's directed by the, the guy who um, directed The King's Speech, which I really enjoyed. So I'm hoping that he's going to do a good job with it and do mm-hmm. a good treatment of it. But yeah... Who knows? Who knows? This we'll is, see. These are early days. We just literally yes. heard about this news like a couple of days ago, right? hmm Yeah. Yeah. It was this week. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm looking forward to we'll seeing see. some stills and some behind the scenes. And oh,
1: yes. I can't wait to see the costuming.
0: Oh, yeah. That was... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we haven't heard about... I forgot who the... Um, I was gonna say the boy child. Yes, <laughs> no,
1: it is the boy. Is it Will? Is Will, that yes, Will.
0: Yeah. we yeah. haven't heard um, who's being cast in his role, so yeah, I'm looking forward to more news from it. We'll see how it turns out. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: But yes, um, do we have time for one more news story, or should we move on? Let's see.
1: Is there something you were dying to talk about today?
0: You know what? I was only dying to talk about the Terry Pratchett news. To be quite <laughs> honest. <thought> so. <laughs> So I think we can probably move on without. All right.
1: Well, before we get into our sci-fi fantasy translation picks, uh, we have another sponsor, and it is Scribes by James Walenick. Uh It's the first book in the scribe cycle, and it is about a land ravaged and ruined by brutal years of civil unrest, and scribes are both feared and worshipped, valued for their skills, and exploited for what those skills can provide because the magic of an ordinary scribe can temporarily grant a soldier involvement. But our main character, Anna's runes are different. They never fade and the immunity she grants lasts forever. However, the immortal in unholy army she unwittingly creates weighs laced to her homeland And now she has to do whatever she can to reclaim her power. So if you enjoy dystopian fantasy settings, um, magic, and uh, people struggling to use their powers for good, these are all reasons to check it out. So again, that is Scribes, the first in the Scribe Cycle by James Wolanick. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Fantastic.
0: And I guess I will kick this off with my, okay, so this is, (laughs) this is my quote-unquote fantasy recommendation, (laughs) and I was sitting there like, the hardest part, this is the book that I chose because, I chose this theme because I read this book, but I was sitting there like, what category does this book actually fit in? So it's Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Sadawi, and it's translated by Jonathan Wright, and This is translated from the original Arabic, um, and I've seen it categorized as horror more than anything else, but I have to disagree. I thought it had elements of horror for sure. Like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is cast as horror alongside science fiction a lot, and while Frankenstein in Baghdad doesn't have that laboratory science experiment component I wouldn't call it science fiction, and it also didn't smack of straight-up horror. So I think I'm shelving this under speculative fiction. Like that broad (laughs) umbrella term where you put all of these nebulous genre-vending things is where I'm putting this. So in this book, there's fabulism, there is some horror, and there's fantasy. And I think if you like Isabel Allende, you'll find a familiarly fantastical or fantastic tone here. Um, and you'll also find similar themes of war and shifting viewpoints between multiple characters. It's told in third person, but you get a lot of different perspectives. Um, and the story unfolds in U.S. occupied Baghdad in Iraq, and the streets are racked by bombings. Houses are left abandoned. The younger generation is fleeing war to live in places like Australia and that includes the children of um, one elderly woman who refuses to leave her crumbling but austere home because she's sure her youngest child, her son Daniel, will return home even though she hasn't heard from him since he was hauled off to serve in the military. And she speaks to a framed image of a saint who assures her she'll be repaid for her faith, and she knows that means her son will return, or she guesses that he will because she is a very faithful woman. She has a lot of faith in these things that seem impossible, like a saint speaking to her from a framed picture. And meanwhile, Hadi the drunk is creating a monster from the ruined victims of neighborhood bombings in his shack full of oddities and items rescued from fallen people and places. And meanwhile, a young journalist is sort of steadily climbing the ladder, and he gets a little too involved in his boss's life um, in a wild story delivered by a really unreliable uh, narrator and in the workings of this strangely esoteric branch of the government, And at the center of these narratives is this monster. And the monster is Hadi's creation who roams the street with a sense of purpose and this sort of Catch-22 survival complex. And this isn't uh, the Frankenstein's monster, the one with a limited lexicon and a permanently baffled expression like you would see in those... You know, classic horror films based off of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This is definitely an entity created by the ravages of war and in the images of this broken society. And reading about war isn't what I'd call fun. I have never particularly enjoyed it. But this book was strangely enjoyable, and I kind of felt weird. I think I mentioned this a few times, like it was either on the back channels of, you know, the Book Riot Contributor Slack or on insiders. But I did find this book oddly whimsical. There were moments of really cringy brutality, but there was the there was a dark whimsy on the page, and I guess you would call it gallows humor. But everyone's affected by the war and the seemingly random bombings are central to the story, but they've also become oddly commonplace among the people in this depiction of Baghdad. And the monster's mentality is really fascinating as well. Like the morals he creates to hold on to his humanity and the ethical workarounds he comes up with to survive are really fascinating because this monster is a stand-in, or I guess a mirror, that reflects our hold on humanity in the face of extreme crisis, like in a war. And to me, that in and of itself is terrifying, but the characters were so different and interesting, and especially Hadi had such a, he was sort of a buffoon in ways, and I didn't know whether to feel for him or to laugh at him or with him or to be like, what are you doing? But they all had quirks like that. They were uh, funny and sad and really complex. The characters, they, you know, held on to these hopes that, you know, can never be fulfilled, at least not in the ways they expect them to be. And, you know, clinging to times and places that no longer exist, telling tales to escape reality, and backtalking these framed images of saints. It was a very different sort of story. I don't think I've ever read anything quite like this book. And I know it had mixed reviews. I mean, I don't usually pay attention to reviews, but it was sort of brought to my attention that it had really mixed reviews. And I looked at them. I couldn't really understand a lot of the reviews because they were in Arabic. But at least in my personal reading experience, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great book, and it stayed with me for a long time after I read it. Uh, read it. So, if you like your books, I guess, on the genre crossing, bendy side that are also like layered and dark and darkly humorous, I would definitely pick up Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Sadawi, and just give
1: it a try. Amanda was reading that, too, oh, if yeah. I remember correctly. You're yeah. right.
0: I, wa- I should have I, asked her about that, what she thought.
1: Yeah, I, th- I feel like she liked it. Okay. But I, I could be lying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask her. <laughs> yeah, you should ask her. Um, My... Also sort of fantasy pick. uh, Definitely fabulism could apply. It's very surreal. Is a short story collection called Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck. Um, Now, some of you who are purists might object because some of these stories were written in English, but the collection also contains stories that were translated from Swedish, so I am counting it so there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And this book is so strange. It is as I said, very surreal. And it also has some elements of like there's body horror and there are consent issues and there's kind of cannibalism. It's really gross is the (laughs) word I'm reaching for here. Like there are certain stories where I was very squicked out. Um, But she also manages to make the stories very haunting and very beautiful. So if you are If you have a strong stomach and you're prepared to like have elements of horror in with your sort of mythical fairy tale stuff, then this is a collection you should check out. Um, I don't think it's actually when you think about the early sort of, you know, for example, Grimm's fairy tales, those are also frequently gross and have you know people losing feet and you know like strange issues of consent like it's very much in that tradition but with a very sort of modern feel um there are gosh just so many stories that like little bits and pieces of them are now stuck in my brain forever um there is one where a family is uh off in a remote lakeside town. Um, the story is called Reindeer Mountain. And the two young sisters, the, the, they're there because their family home is sort of being emptied out. Um, an older relative has died. And they're trying to figure out what to do with the stuff in the house. And you start to learn as they go through the things that there's a history of mental instability in the family. And then there's also maybe a supernatural twist to this. And perhaps they're not insane. Perhaps there are real fairies and and the fairies are calling to them. Um, There's another one that has sort of a zombie village. But it's a really sort of different take on a zombie village uh there's a really strange one that a bunch of us were trying i had i was like help who else has read this book i need to talk about the ending of this um because we were trying to figure out if if in fact if it was a metaphor or if we were to supposed to read the story literally and where we ended up was who knows um <laughs> So yeah, there's one where there's this sort of Alice in Wonderland-esque, you know, court full of supernatural creatures treating humans very, very badly. And then one of them discovers time and what does that mean for this world? Um, there's one where it's like a giant body and there are little people inside the body. But is it a metaphor? Or is it not a metaphor? That's the one that we were arguing about. There's there's just so much in here. And it's... It, I read it over a series of, like, I read it on a plane and then also at night. So, like, they blend together in this sort of hypnagogic way in my brain where it's hard to remember which bit was part of which story. So the reading experience is not at all straightforward, as you might have guessed from the way I am describing this. Um, And it is complicated, and you might get grossed out, and you might find it problematic. And I think that is all sort of deliberate on her part. I think she is really succeeding at creating an atmosphere where you're really not sure what's going to happen next and there is no moral to the story, but at the same time, you kind of can't look away and it's so vivid and detailed and beautifully rendered. So even, even the most disturbing ones are beautifully described, <laughs> which is a really bizarre sort of mental place to be. It reminded me a bit of Kelly Link's short stories. Which I love, um, and she also has a tendency to like mix a little bit of horror in with her fantasy and a little bit of social commentary in there. Um, I don't think there's real, technically obvious social commentary in the Tidbeck so much, um, but it certainly has modern takes in it. And modern jokes, even. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, for as much as I've talked about this book, I still struggle to talk about it in concrete terms. Clearly, <laughs> um, but I think that's too that's to its credit. Uh, she has made something weird and wonderful, and 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 it should be hard to capture in words what that is unless you have read it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it succeeds at what it's trying to do in a really interesting and. I will say it again, disturbing way. (laughs) So that's Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck.
0: I can't remember if I told you this, but I think I wrote my first online fan mail to Karen Titbey.
1: Really? Yeah, this so this collection, I should note, it's been reissued. It's been published like 3 or 4 times, I want to say, by different publishers. It seems to be hopping around. Did you was it from this collection or was it from one of her other things that you wrote her fan mail?
0: It was only because of the short story Jagannath which was uh, there's a podcast called the Drabble Cast where they mm. read aloud short stories, short oh. science fiction and fantasy stories. And way back in, like, I think 2012, when this was just a short mm-hmm. story, I heard it read. So you can actually, I think it's still online if you want to hear just this one story read. Uh, the title story it, it would i just remember i was sitting in my car listening to it and i was like i have to i have to tell this person that the story is incredible mm. <laughs> but yeah That's, yeah
1: How, did i do a decent job
0: of <laughs> i think of so capturing <laughs> that i mean if it was just based on the one story that um i read that was a really it felt like being in a dream mhm mhm Yeah, so I I agree. Like, it's very difficult. There's a lot of, like, body stuff, and Mm. it's very difficult to describe. Yeah. For sure.
1: It's worth reading, though, I think.
0: Yes, definitely. I loved it. I loved it. Um, Okay, so for my science fiction pick... I chose Roadside Picnic, which you have heard
1: before. Yes, I, I literally, <laughs> I I went to look at the agenda and I was like, how dare you? I literally typed, I how dare you? And she was like, what did I do? And I was like, I'm so jealous that you thought to pick that because that story is bonkers. Okay, sorry. I'll let you yes. say the author and the translator now.
0: I was all alarmed when you... I know. <laughs> you wrote sorry, you. I scared you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it's Roadside Picnic, and this is by Arkady and Boris Stragotsky, and it's translated. My version is translated by Olena Bormashenko. And I have had this book on my shelf for years, and this was the theme that made me pick it up because I was like, what else am I supposed to read? And so I finally did give it a read and um, I actually learned about the adaptation of the book Mm -hmm. Stalker before I knew it was loosely based on a book and both Mm -hmm. of them are so out there. So um, I can't even remember why I had a momentary fascination. I must have been into film at that time because the film was directed (laughs) by Andre Tarkovsky Mm -hmm. who also directed the film Solaris and I'm sure... I heard that the film influenced a favorite director or something, and that's why I own the book and the film now. But anyway, the book is not quite the same as the film or the video game it inspired. Um, This is sort of classic Soviet science fiction, except it's set in a fictitious town in what appears to be North America, in this Chernobyl-like zone of destruction. And... There's extraterrestrial waste left by these aliens who have come and gone at the book's opening. So the aliens are no longer there. And I read somewhere that the fictitious town Harmont is supposed to be in Canada, but I couldn't actually find any reference to Canada in the book, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but the story follows Red Schuhart, who's one of a few uh, daring or maybe reckless people, depending on how you look at it. Um, one of the few who tra- who traversed this zone to illegally fish out artifacts left behind in exchange for money, and as you might imagine of any alien-induced zone of waste and destruction, the terrain is really dangerous for a host of really strange reasons, and the waste left behind doesn't only come in the form of artifacts, um, So those who enter the zone do it at risk of death and physical degradation. And the horrors some of these stalkers witness and suffer are seriously the stuff of nightmares. It it was horrifying to read when I actually got to that part. Uh, But this is Red's chosen career. He won't leave his town and he seems unwilling to choose a safer career. And other people who have dealings with the zone, are members of the military, and they're the scientists who study the phenomena surrounding the event and its aftermath. And as a stalker, Red has a very complicated relationship with some of these people, um, and with a type of stalker known as vultures. And in general, I guess I would say overall, the story paints a really surreal and bleak picture of the first contact story. And I mean, in my head, I'm like, well, who are we kidding? It's likely that if intelligent life touches down on our planet, we won't be swapping flowers. And I don't know if that makes me sound paranoid, but the book definitely touched on my own they-are-out-there fears and they-might-be-coming-for-us fears. And the picnic metaphor was horrifying. I won't spell it out. You'll have to read about it because it doesn't, they don't actually talk about it until later in the book. Um, I didn't even think about it until they started talking about it. But this is a really solid classic science fiction you can read in a short amount of time. I have a paperback copy that's 193 pages long and the pacing is really fast and fluid I didn't get bogged down by lengthy details about the science behind the alien tech or exposition about the alien's landing because there was none. There was, like, (laughs) no explanation for a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're the sort of person who needs to know the whys and hows and what's in great detail, you might be disappointed here. However, I enjoyed being in the moment and figuring it out as I went along and being completely baffled by the physics and nature of the zone – So I would call it maybe productively disorienting, if that's a thing. (laughs) That's a great
1: phrase. That's a great phrase. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the story follows Red from 23 to 31 um, in terms of age and some missing years in between. And it's told in four parts. I was especially pleased that my edition comes with a foreword by Ursula Le Guin. I didn't even notice that until I took my book off the shelf. Um so that was fantastic and yeah I just really enjoyed it I am so glad I finally got around to reading this book and I would definitely if you especially if you like first contact stories which I find fascinating then I would definitely recommend Roadside Picnic by
1: Arkady and Forrest Strugatsky. Yeah that that book man it's something I <laughs> I read. I was sent an excerpt of it by this guy I was dating like years and years and years ago, and I read it and was like. What? Um, and it it really it's funny it really stuck in my head and then years later I realized I had only read an excerpt and not the whole book and so then I read the whole book and I was like what (laughs) Um, and it kind of sent me down this Russian sci-fi fantasy spiral which we could literally do a whole show about Um, there's you know Sergei Lukinenko and um, Victor Polavin and so many amazing weird weird Russian sci-fi authors to talk about um maybe we'll do that someday I'll have to catch up with you there's a lot of material there um but yeah I I do kind of love the very specific strangeness of the Russian sci-fi fantasy that I've read and of which Roadside Picnic was the first so yeah Yeah. it's it's I really do love it and it just occurred to me that um Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer is a decent comp for that book. So if you're looking for more like Annihilation, this might be a good one to pick That's up. That's a good And point. vice versa, vice versa, yeah. 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 They, they pair well together, um, in their, in their, in their disorienting productivity, productive disorientating, however (laughs) we want to say it. I like it. I'm going to keep that. All right. My sci-fi pick is the three body problem by Sijin Liu, translated by Ken Liu, who I have talked about loving his books before. Um, so I love that this book is translated by an author, a sci-fi fantasy author who also writes their own material. That just makes me happy in my heart. Um, Um, And this is the first book in a trilogy. I have not read all three of them yet. Um, But these books were just blowing up um, when uh, Three Body Problem first came out. In I want to say, let's see, it was republished in 2014. So that sounds about right. Um, It's been a few years now, but everybody I know was reading them for a while for very good reason. And this is the hardest of hard sci fi. Like, it is very mathy in a way that I occasionally found like I just had to give up on following the internal logic of certain sections because my grasp of physics was not up to it same <laughs> um, yeah. yeah like I just I don't have a math brain and this book really leans into the science and mathematics and and and, and logic of the plot in a way that was occasionally just like I'm just going to skim this paragraph now um, but it was I didn't mind I didn't mind because this, the overarching story is so compelling and so fascinating. Um, This book takes place in two timelines, one of which is during the Cultural Revolution in China, when an astrophysicist um, has witnessed her father being beaten to death by red guards um, and grows up and uh, ends up sort of becoming, like, she's sent to prison, which is not super unusual in that time, sadly. But then she gets rescued by military physicists and and creates this giant satellite um, and sends a message into outer space. Uh, And then years later, actually receives a message in return. Um, And then in the present day, a bunch of scientists are dying. Uh, And... A detective who is sent to work on the case alongside a nanotech professor um, because they called in an expert, as it were, to try to figure out what is going on with all of these scientists who are dying. Um, they, They notice in the course of their investigation that there's some weird chatter going on between world governments and like people seem to be gearing up for war. And in the process of the investigation, the nanotech professor starts to play this VR video game called Three Body, uh, which has been sort of the linking thing among the scientists. And I don't want to give away the big twist, but... The video game is essential to how the plot unfolds from there on. So you get this really sweeping story that goes back and forth in time and involves um, extraterrestrial life, but not at all in a way that I had ever seen done before. You get this video game element, which is super fascinating, although that is where the most sort of mathiness and scienceiness came through that I had that I struggled a little bit with following. Um, but but you really do feel like you're immersed in this virtual reality game along with the character. And the characters were fascinating to follow. I really sort of loved the dynamic between the very sort of deliberately gumshoey detective and then the professor who's just like, stop it, like stop smoking in front of me, stop everything. You're doing everything. everything. Everything wrong, stop. Uh, They had a really great dynamic. They played off of each other really well. And there's an epic action sequence towards the end of the book that I still think about so yeah I will eventually get to the other two books in this series I haven't I've had so much else to read and these are long they are not short uh fair warning um but I just think I know a bunch of people who have read all three of them and I just really I'm so glad that these have come to English translations they're incredibly popular in China um and they are like I think among like if not the most popular science fiction novels in China and have won awards um, both in China and the U.S., I believe. So, yeah, right. Ken Liu won a translation award. Um, Fitting. I believe or no it was nominated for the Nebula and it won the Hugo in 2015 so yeah there's a lot of good stuff going on I do believe that the second and third books are translated by someone else Uh, yes Joel Martinson is the translator for the second and third books Um, but I know that Ken Liu got to do an in conversation oh no I take it back Ken Liu translated the third one but not the second one so first and third and then the second one is different I think he probably was busy writing his Books, books, yes. which is fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll allow it. Um, So yeah, that is The Three-Body Problem by Sijin Liu, translated by Ken Liu.
0: And that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, you can always email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. Let us know what you think. Send us any theme recommendations you want or ask us any questions. You can also review us on apple podcast that helps people find us um in our podcast so that would be very helpful you can find me online at on instagram at s zainab williams that's s z a i n a b williams and what about you jen
1: i am on tumblr it's jenirl.tumblr.com and until next time happy reading happy reading